I'm Dr. Omar Khan. I'm Dr. Shannon Gowland. I'm Dr. Tiffany Dursey. And welcome to Vet Sessions. Welcome to Vet Sessions. Hello, I am your host, Dr. Tiffany Dursey, and I'm here today to interview Dr. Carol Matthews. And Dr. Carol Matthews was one of my professors, one of my favorite professors, and was very instrumental um, at creating and developing the intensive care unit here at the Ontario Veterinary College. But she has such an interesting past and history. Uh, Today, we wanted to talk about the real Carol Matthews. So Carol, bring it on. Tell us about Carol. Okay, well, um, I was born in the era where girls um, pursue, they don't pursue a career, but a mm-hmm. working bit until they get married and have children and stay home. Right. So you're really led into the pathway of becoming a secretary or a nurse or a teacher. Um, and so uh, in England, um, when you finished or I think it's your sort of juvenile school here, Um, you either go into what's called a secondary modern, which is sort of a trades type school, or you go to grammar school, which is sort of the gateway to a university, whatever. Mm -hmm. And so my mother felt that uh, girls um, go into the trades area because you need to become a secretary or a nurse or a teacher or something like that. Sure. So that's kind of where I was directed And very sadly, my father died when I was 15. And so um, we were living abroad because he was in the military. So we ended up having to go back to England. And so going back to where there's no house, no nothing, right? And so I had to go out to work. And so I luckily, I had my secretarial training. So I was a secretary. And um, one of the girls in the typing pool... Um, was moving to Canada. Hmm. And so I said, oh, well, you know, send me a letter. We didn't have email in those days. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm talking here about the 60s, right? early 60s. And um, so um, then after a few months, I received a letter saying that, oh, Canada is a wonderful place. And, uh, you know, we were always taught that it was snow and igloos and things like that. But she went to Toronto (laughs) and she said, no, it's not like this at all. (laughs) So, um, in fact, the summer was warmer than it was in England. (laughs) You know, we were free of rain for three days the whole summer. (laughs) So um, I started to think about maybe, ah, you know. So at the age of 18, I emigrated to Canada. and um, By yourself? by myself. Oh my gosh. And I got a job at Simpson Sears. Oh my gosh, I remember secretarial yeah. pool. Okay. And um, part of my job was to um, take phone calls on complaints. Oh wow. And I remember the, I didn't <laughs> like that job at all and I remember this one person was complaining about something totally ridiculous and I told him that hung up and I knew I'd get fired so I handed in my notice. Oh. <laughs> And um, I applied for a job at Sunnybrook Hospital. Okay. And at that time, it was a veterans hospital. So I was in the typing pool. And then when I learned the medical jargon, you know, <laughs> for typing. Yeah. And, um, oh, right. I, um, I um, got the position in the Department of Otolaryngology, so ear, nose and throat. Okay. And so yeah. I was secretary there to the head of that department. And then after a couple of years, the University of Toronto took over 
uh, Sunnybrook, and um, they were expanding the audiology department. And one of the ear, nose and throat surgeons in charge asked um, if I would be interested in training as an audiology technician. Oh, wow. And I thought, yes, this would be very nice. Mm-hmm. So, um, yes, I trained on the job and also um, was able to sit in on some lectures with regard to audiology at the University of Toronto. Interesting. So that's kind of what I did. I met my husband and uh, he was a pilot in the Air Force and, and then left. And um, he computers were just starting then and mm-hmm. that really interested him. So um, he... Um, was accepted into the University uh, of Waterloo, where um, he started his computer science degree. Okay. But being separated wasn't too keen. So mm-hmm. anyway, he applied to University of Toronto, was transferred there. Oh, so okay. here he is doing his uh, studies, and Carol's working away and coming home every night, and he's studying every night. And I said this is a bit of a drag. All yeah. you do is study. And he looked at me and he said, have you ever thought about going back to school? <laughs> that was very smart. <laughs> I said, no, no, I haven't. He said, well, why don't you? Yeah. And I thought, oh, well, what would I do? And I thought, well, I've, I'm now used to the medical life yeah. and I really enjoyed it. But to be honest, I wasn't too keen on the persona of MDs. Okay. So I thought, I don't want to be one of those. Mm-hmm. So I thought, what about veterinary medicine? We've always had pets, mm-hmm. and I just love them. And so I volunteered at the SPCA because I wasn't sure if I could handle the euthanasia because sure. being overseas a lot, and when we found animals in the street and brought them home, looked after them, etc., and then when we left, we had to euthanize them or yeah. find homes. So it was very hard. Anyway, so at SPCA, I was able to help out doing various things. Mm-hmm. And um, when the euthanasia times came for some animals, I found I could handle it. There was good reason for it. So I thought, well, maybe I, I can overcome I can this. So then um, I applied. I was lucky in that at, uh, in Toronto there is what's called an adult day school. Okay. So I applied to the adult day school. And I had my uh, general certificate of education, which is GCE, you know, okay. O level. And that's okay. equal to grade 12. And when I wanted to go back to school, you had to do grade 13, 13. right? Okay. And so I had the certificate of GCE O level. And fortunately for me, mm-hmm. the person that was assessing my school background yeah. just looked at this uh, piece of paper that said GCEO level pass. Right. Didn't know what it was. Well, he did, <laughs> but he didn't look to see that it was just English grammar. Oh, I see. He didn't okay. look to see that there was no math, no no oh my biology, none of that stuff. <laughs> just saw, okay, GCEO, okay, Good you enough. can come to grade 13, right? So anyway, I was accepted in grade 13 and my husband doing math all the time for computers. He said, look, Carol, I'll help you. I'll teach you. Don't worry. That would be scary. (sighs) So all I knew how to do was add, subtract, multiply and divide. Right. So when it came along with the calculus and all those weird weird signs they had, I'd go home and say, what is this? (laughs) So anyway, he helped me through all of this. Wow. I had an interest in biology, so that Mm -hmm. was easy enough. 
I had to do night school for chemistry. Okay. Um, I managed to get through that. So anyway, I ended up passing grade 13, and I applied to University of Toronto. Luckily, I ended up with really good marks, Great. and so I was accepted. And uh, so I did the two years there because John transferred to U of T as well. So okay. we were together. And that's very important when you've got no salary coming in and you need right. a place to live and right. stuff. Right. <laughs> that must have been hard. Yeah. So anyway, after um, I did the two years at U of T, uh-huh. and then I applied to come to University of Guelph, and you were notified of being accepted in that fall time. Okay. Because our pre-vet semester started in January. Right. And at OVC. Okay. okay. And then you started the, the program properly that September. Okay. So fortunately, I was accepted. And That's amazing. Um, so um, that's kind of how... You know, my veterinary career started. And then uh, after I graduated, I wasn't sure where I wanted to be. So I went into general practice, mixed practice, because I wasn't sure, small, large, whatever. Okay. And so while I was in the small animal practice, um, I we didn't have referral clinics. We only had OVC in those right, times, that's right? right. Yep. And so um, a lot of yep. practitioners were able to do surgery in their practice. Okay. And so I recall the days when you'd have this one that was a little different yep. and putting the surgical text up on a stand as I was doing oh the surgery. Yep, for sure. Yep, yep. <laughs> and uh, then I thought, no, That's I want enough. to be able to do surgery better, better than I can. So I then applied to uh, OVC for the internship. Wow. I was accepted. And um, then uh, I obviously did some surgery during my internship but again I felt that I wanted to be a better surgeon okay so I applied for surgical residency and I was accepted and then there wasn't a DVSC but after I finished first year of my surgical residency DVSC uh, was introduced okay and I had to start over again because it was a three-year program oh my gosh so essentially I had four years (laughs) oh my gosh good for you and at the end of that um, I decided to do a postdoc in kidney transplants oh I didn't know that yeah wow and so I did that and as that was finished uh, of course I would have my patients in this what's called the fluid ward okay and so we had um You know, my patients were in there, and because I was spending a lot of time in there because of my patients, uh, when uh, emergency critical care, or I should say critical care, um, became a a practice in veterinary medicine, that was in the mid-late 80s. Okay. Um, Then Dr. McDonnell um, began a rotation for students, uh, an ICU rotation, which meant they would rotate through this ICU, which would be started up. So the fluid ward became the ICU. Interesting. Because yeah. before that, uh, sorry to interrupt, but there was no um, proper ICU at OBC. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. And so Peter Pasco was an anesthetist also, and he was to take this over. But um, in the meantime, he accepted a job at Davis in California. Okay. So they were left with nobody to take charge of this, and the rotation had already been established. Oh, wow. So Dr. McDonnell asked if I had anything planned, and I hadn't. Mm -hmm. So he said, how would you like to take on this role? And I thought, oh, my goodness, what do I know about medicine? I've just done all this time in surgery, (laughs) you know. And, you know, surgeons are always sort of, you know, oh, you don't know enough about medicine. So anyway... I needed a job, yep. so I said, oh, yes, 
thank you. I will take that, you know. Sure. So here's another serendipitous action. You know, my my training as an audiology technician introduced me to medicine. medicine. Yep. My husband suggesting I go back to school. That's great. <laughs> and then from there, having all this other stuff happen to get into vet school and then having ICU start and wow. me just happen to be there. Yep. Um, so then we did that. And then um, obviously there was a lot of, um, I was looking after the patients, but they all belonged to another clinician. So okay. the big decision-making was theirs. But the ongoing care was something I had to observe and manage. So anyway, here's another serendipitous thing that happened. There was a, a surgical resident from McMaster University, Hamilton General, okay. and he um, wanted to do a study with rabbits, and it was a peritonitis model. And um, the animal care facility said, only if you would allow your rabbits to recover in the ICU mm -hmm. and be managed there so they can have appropriate fluids and analgesia and he mm -hmm. agreed to that so i was looking after his bunnies and he would come every morning to join us for rounds and check on his rabbits and he said to me one day how would you like to come to my icu and check it out i said yes i'd sure. like that so he asked dr clive davis who is an animal lover and clive said absolutely so i went down there and he took me under his wing and he set me up with all the continuing education uh, topic lectures that his um, residents go through. And you're talking human residents, human, like human yes, medicine residents. Yes, residents. but you know what? It's the same. Okay. You know, when you're sure. looking at cardiology, you know, yeah. you're looking at the physiology and a lot of this was physiology. Mm -hmm. So um, I uh, was signed up to these classes and I was able to get time off from OVC because it was, you know, maybe two mornings a week. Mm -hmm. So um, I would, you know, go down to Hamilton to McMaster for those mornings wow. and I would take those courses with them and I learned so much and it was all related, obviously, to critical care. And um, I was also um, welcome to join on rounds. So I would go on the hospital rounds and also journal club. And I'm still involved with the journal club today. No kidding. <laughs> it's expanded like crazy. I bet. Um, so anyway, um, Dr. Davis gave me his home number, his office number and his cell number. And he said, if ever you need any help with mm -hmm. any patient, give me a call. Wow, that's and great. he was there for me. And it doesn't matter, 10 o'clock at night, 2 mm -hmm. o'clock in the morning when I had a crash and burn and I didn't know what else to do, yeah. I'd phone Clive and he was there for me. That's incredible. And he would give me directions over the phone and I'd have the text standing there and I'd be yeah. passing this, it on. That, yeah. <laughs> and at the same time, he was citing the, the uh, article that this information came from, you know, wow. just wonderful. And so he was the one that got me through the advanced knowledge base that okay. you need. And because I didn't have a mentor, there was no sure. mentor, yeah. right? Yeah. And so um, I then took the uh, board certifying examination in 1993. And there were only seven of us in North America taking wow. this exam. And that's for the um, diplomat at the American board. College of Veterinary Emergency and Critical, Critical Care. Critical Care, okay, yes. ECC. Yeah, and I think it was uh, only the third year that this exam wow. was held. 
Um, so how would, how would, I mean, so you basically just prepared on your own because there wouldn't have been with Clive, but there wouldn't have been any coursework manuals (laughs) or telling you how to pass. No. Um, and there were, you know, there was the veterinary journal, but it wasn't, you know, as frequent it is as it is now. So, uh, you know, when you look at Guyton medical textbook Mm -hmm. of physiology, his, um, models with dogs oh interesting you know so that physiology i had there with guyton okay and then how you know it was used and you know various medications and all of that kind of stuff um and also there was the um veterinary emergency and critical care society uh conferences were held at that point okay uh also before i took the exam i went to wisconsin and Mm -hmm. spent uh, a couple of weeks there at a practice um and uh, i also went to boston and spent a week at the women's hospital in boston wow so to pick up you know where various people were welcome to have me and had sort of some special right you know whatevers and uh, so with all that together um i was able to pass the exam that is phenomenal. So I, 1993. I can't, <laughs> I can't even imagine. And and so you said at the time there was only a few a few ECC critical care specialists. And so you really, were you one of the first ones in Canada or at the Ontario Veterinary College? Anyway? I was the first one. Wow, that's that's and I, awesome. And we established the first ICU. I mean, right? Clinics had you know, a care area. Sure. Obviously, you know. So I can't say this is the first one, but to call it. Not an really intensive labeled. care unit with a person that's got that right you know sort of sticky paper right. <laughs> yeah i was the first this that's, was the first that's incredible absolutely and, and so, the first to train as well because sure. you couldn't train uh, until you were board certified you couldn't I have see. residents to train them as board certified right of course so not only was that giving me uh, credentials and confidence. Yes. It was also giving me the ability to be able to take on a program. Right. And then from there, the residents that I've had have, you know, gone from coast to coast, Europe, all over the world, you know, and the United States. So, you know, when you look at it, um, because they didn't have schools there right. or training programs there, then we were able to do it here and then they could go there and s- establish their own. So when you reflect on that, you had said, um, you know, at 18, you know, you, you came over to Canada, which you have guessed that this is what you would have done. <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, I think the reason I had the courage to come was because uh, being the daughter of a military man that was mm. posted to different areas in the world every three years, after living in England for three years, I became restless because that was my... Sure time to move on sure and uh so and then serendipitous meeting somebody who moved to canada right and um you know got me here and then those other things that got me like that that client complaining (laughs) i took the phone call and said i've had enough of this (laughs) let's move on yeah so i think what i want to um say to people that may listen to this is serendipity is there mm. and but what you have to do is you have to notice it right. you have to take it um, because even though things seem totally outrageous never going to happen yeah. they do they do happen but you have to be the one 
to go through with it. You have to say yes. You, know, you have to say yes. And um, that's throughout all my career stuff, it's been... You said a lot of some, yes. Yeah, somebody's <laughs> always made these suggestions yeah. or I found that, ooh, you know, Maybe I that could do little that. trigger. Yeah. Wow, that's that's really interesting. So would you be able to approximate how many residents, interns you've trained over the years? Probably hundreds, I would Oh, no. Oh, interns, yeah, because it's four a year, okay. right? Okay. And so from when I was qualified... Okay. Uh, that would be 1993 to 2009, and we'd wow. have four interns a year. A year. Um, and a I'd have one resident uh, um, every three years. Every three years, okay. Um, so, you know, it kind of adds up. It, it sure does. And I, I can't imagine, had you not said yes, where OVC would be. I mean, it was great that you took that opportunity and you had that drive to learn. And because, like you said, you were really a trained surgeon. Yeah. So, yeah. And actually, that did help because, in a way, when you have some emergency procedures to do, true, not necessarily totally... I mean, I was used to doing emergency surgery because of my training, but some of the things I could do without having to go to surgery because I okay, could, you, could do it yourself. you know, I could put in uh, a chest drain easily when sure. in those days it was incisions and things, you know, and right, I, it right. wasn't like, ooh. Yeah. Um, and uh, <laughs> may, some, some small procedures that a, a patient may have in addition to their illness or in addition to their trauma, you know, things like that. Um, so that didn't upset me at all. Whereas if you didn't have any surgical background, you may want to re refer a lot of things that, you know, to someone else kind of thing. But when it comes right. to the medicine aspect, I really had to do a lot of learning. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> now, now tell me, because one of the capacities that I know you is more so with your passion for uh, pain management and, and being interested in, in pain in general and animals. Because I, I can recall uh, uh, you telling me one time that there was a time, and it's not that long ago, um, that it was believed that animals uh, could not feel pain. Uh, I recall sitting in... Um you know, what was then the lecture rooms um, in the OVC building. Right. And um, one of the professors saying that animals don't feel pain like humans do. Wow. And I was sitting there and I just couldn't understand that comment because having pets all my life and knowing that when you accidentally step on the tail or on <laughs> their right. toes, they, yeah, they tell you, you know, they tell you. <laughs> and, you know, when they've been injured or something, I mm -hmm. don't know. I just knew that they did. And um, so that kind of forced me into, I got to read more about this because I mm -hmm. don't believe it. And, um, you know, I've learned that animals feel pain at the same degree. And the reason for that is protection. Nature has given us this level of discomfort as a warning to get away. Right. You know, so here's this volcano coming down and you've got this critter walking towards it. Well, guess what? It's yeah. too hard. It hurts. I'm yeah. backing off. Back off. Mm -hmm. And if we didn't have that, everything would be dead. You know, animals would not understand sure. that this is a sign of pain. Yeah. So withdraw. Makes sense. So I knew that pain was prevalent in all species mm -hmm. you know so ones that we knew i mean i don't know about snakes and things like that but they yeah. have to have some <laughs> warning system to get away sure right sure and so that's what made me interested and then also uh, when i was an intern 
I was able to also, um, because part of our duty as an intern was also to do treatments and supervise treatments, which meant that I had to walk through and check the patients. And you could see those that were painful and, you know, not having enough meds and things like that. So then I would give a bit of this and give a bit of that, you know, and you could see that improvement. So it was um, something that I found didn't really exist. Mm -hmm. And, um, and being able to do something um, was um, what really got me majorly interested in it. Mm-hmm. And um, and also being at Hamilton General Hospital and seeing how the various drugs were administered, constant rate infusions and blah, 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 mm-hmm. you know, things like that that we never were really taught. Yeah. Um, so um, I was able to um, at, do that. I, I mean, anesthesia department would, you know, obviously tell us about the various different drugs, but the actual practice and the practical side of things I was able to do as an intern and a surgeon, Mm -hmm. you know. So as a surgical resident, I was having control over my patients, which means that I could prescribe the analgesics and things like that. And so, um, yes, it's... uh, And being in ICU where I've been able to sort of supervise the care of patients and uh, the... Clinicians always let me use my judgment with respect to um, care of the patient. And what I always say about critical care medicine is that we take care of the patient, yes. whereas the clinician takes care of the problem. Ah, so you've got a enough. surgeon that deals with the problem, you know, the mm-hmm. surgical issues, and you've got the internal medicine people that do take care of the problem. But as uh, critical care people, we take care of the body. So acid-base status, um, fluid therapy, too mm-hmm. much, not enough, uh, pain management, um, various other uh, physiologic things that are occurring in this patient that are associated with the um, ongoing care. Right. You know, And there are so many things that can happen because of this this and this Mm -hmm. and so because we're monitoring them all the time we can see that happening before it becomes a serious problem and stop it you know what i mean absolutely and so pain was also part of this part of that um the other thing i remember you saying is how important it was to um have uh, registered veterinary technicians on board in the um, emergency critical care ward ICU um, and how instrumental they were to patient care and, um, and, and teaching. Absolutely. We have to give um, our technicians super credit for what they do. Um, and um, so they're the ones that are monitoring them moment to moment. Mm-hmm. And when you um, include them, in all of your decision making with respect to taking care of the patient, um, then they learn as well. Because like all of us as students, we learn a lot. Mm -hmm. But actually putting that into its practical use, and it's like reading between the lines, you know, you're not always taught all that stuff. Right. So seeing it and knowing how to manage it, you know, and so for example, um, the basics were there. So if, if, mm-hmm. if the tech saw this patient breathing abnormally, for instance, you know, I'd say do blood gases right away just to mm-hmm. see if it's an oxygenation problem, blah, blah, blah. And if you've 
got those results and it isn't that, phone me. Because yeah. then we can see what else it is. But then they got to the point where they didn't phone me for everything anymore because <laughs> they knew what to do and they knew what to do about yeah. it, right? Absolutely. And so by you passing on your information to them, they're able to help the patient <laughs> saving my life i didn't Absolutely. have so many phone calls yeah that's right you have to come in, in the middle of the night. Yeah, yeah because i was the only one at that time i i was 15 years before i got somebody else on board right wow that that must have been very difficult because yeah. then you would have been almost constantly on call and that must have been you are yeah. constantly on call because uh-huh. i started there in 1988 89 in the icu and it was okay. 2004 when alexa joined us Wow. So that was a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, I know we had residents in between time, but when it comes to that, mm-hmm. you're on, you know, then the final thing they always seem to call. So, um, yes, and our technicians are absolutely wonderful. They are so good at their job. I mean, they really, really are. And in fact, they can tell you a thing or two as well. For sure, for <laughs> sure. Well, you know, I recall back with my final year at vet school, so that would have been 1999. I remember the ICU rotation and you would have been in charge at that time. And I remember what I did learn uh, uh, a lot from that particular rotation is how integral each person is in the team, the technicians, the veterinarians, uh, front office staff, the hospital assistants. And you saw with these critical care patients how that puzzle all fit together and how important it was Absolutely. to work as a team. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. In, in patient care. So. Yes. Absolutely. So, so, so now um, uh, you are a professor. And the final year students too. Final, final year students. Can't forget the students. Yep. Yep. That's absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And so now uh, we're here in the year 2021 and you are a professor emeritus here at the Ontario Veterinary College. Um, and what I know about you is that you continue <laughs> to work very hard. Um, you still do a lot of presentations. Um, I know you're always involved in book chapters. What What is Carol Matthews doing right now? That, anything, anything that you'd like to share with us? Well, uh, I've completed um, the third edition of the Emergency Critical Care Manual. Um, An and excellent manual. It's uh, interesting that it's gone from one inch two inches to now three inches <laughs> absolutely <laughs> but that's how our um specialty has evolved sure um and yes i'm still doing lectures most of them now because of covid are virtual but okay. i've been to australia i've been to yes. moscow wow that's <laughs> exciting yeah, a couple of times to australia and okay. moscow and okay. i've been to um, various places here in Ontario. Uh, So it's nice visiting those provinces in your home. You know, it's not bad. Absolutely. (laughs) And the other thing I have taken up an interest in, don't laugh at me with this, but we had a terrible storm last uh, summer, you probably remember, and blew some cedar trees down that were like 90 feet tall. Uh -uh. And so I'm making... Uh tables and things. Come on, you're a carpenter. Well, my husband's doing that cutting. He won't allow me on that equipment. But I'm the Fair designer enough. and finisher and things like that. Well, it's kind of like surgery, really, when you think about putting yeah. a, a table together. Yeah, but, you know, you've got these um, different shaped trees wow. that come down with these lovely wiggly sides and wow, things. Wow, that's so amazing. I did not know that. I yes. mean, I know that you're an active gardener, but I did not oh, I'm know still about doing the that. Okay, good, yeah. good for you. Good yes. for you. Yes. Now, getting back to your emergency critical care manual, I have to say 
that that was a lifesaver for me, continues to be. Uh, but particularly, I remember when I first started in practice way back when, um, that that was always in my handbag and it went everywhere with me. And I should show you my copy because it is well loved and there is lots of coffee on it and other things that I you know, like blood and things like that, because it was there in the treatment room with me always. And it continues to be a very successful book, one that we have, we have three copies here in the clinic and it, it we refer to it all the time. And the students are always very excited to see, oh, oh, we, you know, we, we love that. That's great. It's a great book. And I say, absolutely. You got to buy it. It's number one on my list. So, well, so thank you exciting. very much. But it came from experience, right? Because yeah. when you've got this case, that's you know, going under in front of you, you don't always have a Clive Davis on the other end of the phone. And um, so putting that together was very helpful for, actually it started out, it's interesting how it started out because as I mentioned before, I was being called all the time and you know, every week we have a new intern, you know, they circulate around and whatnot and I was getting called so much. I thought, well, I'll put together some basic protocols Mm -hmm. of what comes in. So, you know, analgesia, fluid therapy, and if you're diabetic, this, and if you're that, that, you know, and sort of that basic stuff. And then um, do all of that. And if there is a point where I've done all this and it still doesn't work, okay, then you can phone me. Yeah, right. So I had these, it was sort of in a notes booklet, and it was, we had a bookstore, you recall, right? I remember that. that. OVC. That's right. So we had it in there, and that was for, you know, students to purchase and also for... um, um, you know, anyone else who wanted them. And it was uh, Life Learn uh, that did That's it. right. And That's right. Alistair Summerlee, before he became president of the university, worked for Life Learn. Okay. And he was looking through the bookstore and he came up with this. And he came to me and he said, Do you think you could expand on this a bit so we could publish it? And I said, Of course not. How can I? <laughs> no, I never even thought of that, you know. And he said, Oh, yes, I again. think it would be very useful. Oh, and yeah. I said, but this is just kind of for our guys, you know. And he yeah. said, no, I, I think it would be very useful. For sure. So here's another serendipitous moment. That's right? right. That's right. So I thought, oh, okay. But I said, you know, I've got to expand it a little bit. We can't just have, you know, this kind of thing. Yeah. So um, I spoke to Tony Og and, yep. um, you know, our off the person. And, you know, I thought, well, get a... F- and some medicine people in and come up with their emergency type of patient and contribute. And that's how it started. Wow. And then, you know, the next edition. And I've got a photograph of first, second, and third. Oh, that's great. How thick they are. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) And I think when you're dealing with um, emergency critical care, you you don't want to rummage through textbooks because there's a whole lot of stuff. So giving that introduction on, you know, the presenting signs, the physiology, and then this is what you ask for history. This is what you do for blood work. And this is what you do if boom, 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 boom. So it's essentially going, you know, you don't have to wade. Yes. And the other important thing is when you're dealing with this problem and you've already discussed how to manage fluid theory, blah, 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 and it's in that other section, you don't want to have to go 
back to index and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So um, I was able to get some volunteers to go through various chapters, right, and say, okay, you read this chapter, and I want you just to put the page number. Yeah. Never mind, look up the the index. Yeah, yeah, absolutely very useful. So that helps with those situations because when you're – when you've experienced those situations, you know that you can't just take, oh, let me just check yep, for sure. Here, you know, yeah. So, yeah. a lot of people have had an input into it based on what happens right at that moment, right? You know what I mean? Well, you've left a huge mark here at OBC uh, Intensive Care Unit on all of your uh, former students, residents, interns, uh, students like myself. Um, we've really enjoyed um, uh, getting to know you over the years and learning more about you. And it's so excellent to have you here as a professor emeritus. You're such a, uh, a, a star here in veterinary medicine. I'm so happy to have gotten to know you over the years. And you've been so supportive of my career um, and uh, and everybody I know around you just, just loves you to bits. And and so this is such a great podcast so that everybody, because uh, again, the first, second, third, fourth year students here uh, at OVC may not know your your contributions in your history. They are aware of your textbook, um, but it's nice to hear the path. And, and again, uh, that pathway for someone um, at that time and the adventurous uh, outlook that you had on life and often saying yes to the opportunities. And like you said, serendipity, um, it's really just so inspiring. And, and it's amazing because not everybody takes the same path pathway to be a veterinarian. I think a lot of people think that you're, you know, you, you need to want to be a vet from a very young age and, and, and do the traditional path where you go to high school and university and then you become a vet. But, um, you know, uh, you can be where you want to be if you're willing to put the work in and to say yes to opportunity. And I think that's, that's what I've learned from you. And also if you've, if you acquire some experience Mm -hmm. working with animals, be it like the SPCA or volunteering at a vet clinic or just to confirm in your mind that this is the path you want to take. And above all, you really have to have an affection for animals. I'm sorry, but you really need that. Um, And a caring for them, you know, to understand what they're feeling. Mm -hmm. And um, it really bothers me that the government, the Canadian government, doesn't recognize animals as sentient beings. Yeah, And I think that's criminal. Yeah, Uh, Other countries in the world do. Hmm. And um, for them to... You know, except the fact that the animals don't have emotions and we can tell that from their facial expressions. You know, they're happy to see you or they're scared or they're painful or they're upset. You know, you can see that. So they are sentient. And um, I think all of us and veterinary students need to know that they are sentient beings. And one of the saddest days of my life was having to retire so um, <laughs> well, um it doesn't seem like I'm you're retired totally I, retired yes <laughs> I feel like you're here today and you do do a lot of speaking and I do see you around uh OBC so and I hope thank you I hope very that, much for I, having me I hope that continues so um so we do have uh, a couple of future podcasts with Dr. Carol Matthews um to talk about some oral pain medications so stay tuned for those upcoming podcasts um thank you to our listeners for joining us today to hear more about the life of uh, Dr. Carol Matthews who's been a very uh, instrumental person here at OVC um if you would like to contact us please do uh you can contact us at vetsessions at hotmail.com if you have any questions um, or any ideas for future podcasts. And then as well, you can follow us on Instagram at Vet Sessions.